chapter in the book of Judges um, with the story of how Joshua and the generation of elders that were alive in his time, they all died. While they were alive, it was good. The people followed God. But it turns out that they were trying. Their faith was a faith of hanging on the coattails of people with true faith. And we saw last week the challenge for us is, is our faith genuine or are, is our faith resting on the faith of somebody else? Uh, and we saw the challenge of that, especially with families. And, and the horrible verse that we saw last week is that the children did not know the Lord or what He had done. Chapter 2, verse 10. Really sad verse. But really wonderful story because God is the God who raises up people to rescue and to save. And the cycle of the judges, they're great stories. Even this one, I love this story. I wish it was taught in Sunday school. Because I, as, as a young man, I would have been paying attention. Um, but the, the cycle of the judges is that you get the Israelites sinning. God sends punishment, chastises them with the surrounding nations. Eventually they cry out, they say, Ah, God, this is too difficult. God raises up a, a deliverer, a savior, who, who comes up and rescues them. Um, the sad thing that we see in Judges is that it's not just that they sin, cry out, God saves, is that they sin, cry out, God saves, they sin even worse, cry out, God saves, they sin even worse, cry out, God saves. The more they sin each time, it, it gets worse and worse and worse. And we even see that here, we, we read the first verse 7 to verse 11 is the story of Othniel. Um, and, and I'm glad you read it because the name of that king is horrible. Um, I'm sure it's put in there just to trip us up. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel and became Israel's judge. And he went to war against King Kushan Rishathim of Aram. Or Aram Naharaim. Horrible words, aren't they? But horrible people who had oppressed Israel for eight years. And God raises up this man who in all the books is the definitive hero. He's got good lineage. He is the son of Caleb's brother, Kenaz. He's got a military line. He's got a line of being vigorous and valiant for the Lord. He's, he's the sort of person that would have played basketball in the story that you read about Zach. He was one of the big guys. He was one of the ah, Hollywood type of deliverer. And the people followed him into battle. It was a good deliverance. It was ah, violence. Not violence. It was more ah, warfare and manly, manly saving you guys. And then he dies. And what happens? We think, okay, they're going to sin. They do. They sin this time 18 years. They're under the power of the Moabites. 18 years under the power of the Moabites. And then we have Ehud, who is a very different sort of judge. We expect, okay, first thing God did was raise up this really manly man to save Israel. So the next thing he's going to do, he's going to raise up a good man with good lineage, and the people are going to follow him into battle. And what does he do? He brings Ehud. A left-handed man. 
a horrible man whose way of saving Israel is to assassinate the king. And to deceive the king. And so the moral of the story is, if you want to follow God, deceive those who stand against God and slice their bellies open. I hope not. Um, Some of us might be a bit embarrassed to have the story of Ehud in the Bible. I mean, surely God does not use a deceiver. Why would God use a murderer? That's what he does. He murders King Eglon. He's not on the field of battle where, where death is part of what it is. But, but he, he goes and he murders him in his house. It's not strange that you find very few children's storybooks with the story of Ehud and Eglon in it. So Israel, 18 years, they've sinned horribly. They did evil in the sight of God, is what we're told in verse 12. God gives him over to King Eglon of Moab, who comes in, he he takes over the, the city of Palms, which is the city of Jericho. So it's It's fitting that we had a story in Jericho from the New Testament. Um, Moab and his allies, he's joined in with a couple of other guys. And and it's quite horrible what we see here. Because Moab, when the Israelites were on the way to the promised land, not too long before this, we're told that Moab was trembling and fearful of the Israelites. Because they knew that God was with them and they knew all that God has done and they were so frightened lest Israel attacked them. And they tried all they could to try and keep them away but Israel anyway wasn't going to go there because God said, no, not Moab, I'm taking you to the promised land. And what we find here is that those who were fearful of the Israelites are now the very ones who attack them. And not only do they attack but but they cross over from Moab, they cross the Jordan River, by the way, which means they've already decimated the tribes living on the, uh, the other bank, the western bank of the Jordan River. They cross over the Jordan River and they take the city of Palms. They take Jericho. The city that, you remember the story perhaps of, of how the Israelites marched around it for seven days and on the seventh day seven times and they blew the trumpets and the walls fell and they destroyed the city utterly. The first big victory of the promised land, undone. Now, this is the place where God had given Israel victory, and here God gives Eglon victory. It was destroyed, probably hadn't been rebuilt by this time, Uh, But it was a very strategic point for the Moabites to come and set up camp. Lots of building material left over from the rubble of a town. uh, A good water supply. Uh, And really, if you think about Jericho, um, have a look on a map in your Bible when you get home. Uh, Strategically, it's a perfect spot to control that whole plain. It's a really good location for the Moabites to set up base. And we see there in verse 14 that the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for a years. 
And the irony there is, is that they refuse to serve the Lord their God, and instead God makes them serve Eglon. And Eglon was not a nice man. He was a tyrant. The, the people were under his, his thumb. They were subjugated to him. They were forced, as we see in the story, to take tribute. That, that, that the best of their land, the best of their crops, the best of their animals, going to King Eglon and his men. Um, recently, Taryn and I have done a... This is an admission... We've done a, a movie marathon of Star Wars. Do you remember Jabba the Hutt? The big slime. If you think of Eglon a little bit like Jabba the Hutt, big and fat, doesn't know how to talk properly, got little arms like this, almost a comical character, but everyone is frightened of him because he rules and he expects you to pay him his bit. And if you don't, you die. If you don't, he will crush you. That's the kind of situation that the Israelites find themselves in. They've got, they've got this horrible person in charge for 18 years. I mean, verse 12, Israel thought they were doing fine. Othniel had saved them. 40 years of rest. Moab is no danger. And yet we're told that their sin brought them low. Last week the sermon was called Prone to Wonder. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And, and I think the story of what happens to, to Israel is, is really the human story that Paul even says, if you think you stand, be careful lest you fall. They thought they were so secure uh, it can happen to us. We think we're doing great, and so we let down our guard a little bit. We start making just a small compromise, which leads to a bigger compromise, and we end up back in slavery to the things that we thought we dealt with years and years and years ago. Um, the, the truth is that when we coast, we make compromises. Do you guys experience that in your life? When you coast, you make compromises. And soon you find yourself back where you were, only more so. And God in His grace uses that to humble us. And there might be people here who find themselves enslaved to sins that they thought they had dealt with years ago. Perhaps this is a story of, of God saying, I can use that. If you cry out to me, I will deliver you. Because that's the message of the judges, isn't it? They cry out to God and He delivers them. Don't we have an amazing God? Isn't that just incredible that even though they have slipped back, it's like they've slid and slid and slid, you know, one step forward, three steps backwards for the Israelites and the judges. Still God rescues them. And still God saves them. And eventually God gives them a king. And when that doesn't work, God sends them into exile, brings them back. And when that doesn't work, God sends His own son. And that works. That works fantastically. And even then, when, when his children slip, Peter, denying Jesus, cries out. In fact, Peter doesn't even cry out. Jesus says to him, look Peter, you're going to fall, I'm going to pick you up. 
that's the God we serve. That's the God we see already in Judges. That's the God of mercy and grace and love. Sometimes we we wonder, how can the God of love punish His children by putting them under a tyrant for 18 years? The Lord disciplines those that He loves. If He didn't love us, He wouldn't be bothered to discipline us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly, to bring us to God. We see that here in verse 15 as well. You see, it says that they cry out for help. It doesn't say that they cry out in repentance. It says that they cry out for help and God responds. And I love that because God doesn't wait for us to be perfect before He saves us. Because if He waited for me to be perfect before saving me, I would die before that happens. (laughs) And so would you. So would all of us. And so he raises up my friend Ehud, an unexpected hero who uses very unexpected and very unheroic methods. He's he's a nobody from a nobody tribe. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. His, His mission, that the Israelites give him a mission to go to Eglon. But his mission is not to deliver them. His mission is to kowtow to Eglon. His job is to go, oh, great Eglon, take our tribute. He is sent. He is sent to to subjugate himself before the king. He is a nobody and so he's perfect. Send Eglon to take the tribute. He was uh, most horribly Who here is left-handed? Anyone here left-handed? Graham. The most horrible thing about Ehud is that he was a lefty. Horrible, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry, Graham. I I thought you were a nice man. The the Bible treats right-handedness very positively. Um... Right-handed is is fantastic. God swears by His right hand. Jesus is seated by the right hand of the Father. Um, Most people are right-handed, and so your right hand is a symbol of your power and your ability and your capacity. And you fight in those days, you fight with your right hand. Ehud, well, everybody in the story except Ehud is focused on his stupid left hand. In fact, there's some who say that perhaps his left hand was actually disabled because the word that's used there is actually can't use his left can't use his his right hand disabled. The word that's used is can't use his right hand. So it could be that his right hand is like limp and hanging there, and everyone looks at him and goes, oh, stupid man. No threat. But even if his hand was perfectly fine, everyone knew this man is just useless. Um, he was from the tribe of Benjamin and it was quite common to be left-handed or ambidextrous in the tribe of Benjamin. Um, you know, we say someone is dexterous. Do you know where dexterous comes from? It, it's derived from the Latin for right-handed. Isn't that interesting? So even the language we use is if you're dexterous, you're right-handed 
and Graham is not. But I, I happen to know that Graham might be a little bit like Ehud and that he's good with his left hand. So what do we find? We find that, that, that Ehud, the left-handed man, goes in to kowtow to King Eglon. Everyone expects him to deliver the tribute and go home. But he's got other plans. He forms this, this dagger kind of thing. It's, it's short. The, the measurement, the word that they use for the measurement there is used nowhere else in the Bible. And so theologians being theologians, they spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly how long it is. Is it 18 inches? Is it this much? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think it's about like 20, 30 centimeters long. It's a dagger. It's a small dagger. It doesn't have a handle. It's like easily concealed on the right hand side. And and, and he does that, obviously, because what are the guards going to check before you let into the presence of the king? They're going to check, do you have a sword on your left-hand side? Because that's where your sword goes, if you're right-handed. Very difficult to pull a sword out like this. So they check him, no sword, they put him in. He goes, he brings the tribute to the king. Verse 16, verse 17, there's, there's no opportunity. He brings the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. There's no chance to strike the blow, and so they leave. He's got a whole bunch of people. The tribute was big, I'm sure. There's other people. And as they're going, they pass by some idols, some marker stones. Ehud says to them, right, you guys carry on. I've got to get back to the king. He goes back. He says, hey, king, I've got, this, I've got this secret message for you. And the king's kind of like, oh. Get out, everyone. I want to hear a secret message. But he's not bothered. This is a useless man. Maybe with a broken right arm, but, but in any case, they've, guards have checked him. He's got no weapons. He's fine. Ehud goes up to him and he says, I have a message from the Lord for you. Actually, what he says there, I have a thing. There's a bit of wordplay there. The word that he uses for, for message is also the same word for thing. So King Eglon thinks, oh, he's got a message. Ehud thinks, I've got a thing for you from the Lord, and it's a knife. Eglon stands to hear the message. I think the writer to the judges really enjoyed this bit because the action has been going really, really fast. And then you get to verse 20 and all of a sudden it slows down. Have a look at what, what it says. And uh, I like the New Living Translation here. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in the cool upstairs room, and said, I've got a message from God for you, or a thing from God. He rose from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger, strapped to his right thigh, plunged it into the king's belly, and the dagger went so deep, this guy was horribly fat, that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat, and so Ehud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. And then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room, and he escaped down the latrine. The, the word for porch, they're not sure, but, but they think it might mean he went down the toilet. Wow. Isn't that horrible? It's quite telling. The dagger went in so far that, that spontaneously either the bowels emptied 
or the guts poured out. It explains, doesn't it, why the attendants on the other side of the locked door go, oof, thinking Eglon's had a bit too much food today, he's a bit stinky in there, he must be on the toilet. Doesn't that explain it, why they don't bother knocking and calling out to him? If you can smell like, it smells like he's on the toilet, he's probably on the toilet. And meanwhile, Ehud escapes through the toilet. And eventually, it takes them a long time of, oh, should we knock, should we go, and should we what? Ehud, well escaped. The servants open up the door. They find Eglon dead. That's their first surprise, um, the dead Eglon. Second surprise is for the Israelites. Remember, the Israelites had sent Ehud, I think, not to save them, but to deliver their tribute. Instead, he comes back, he arrives in the hill country, he blows the horn, he says, come on guys, God has given you the Moabites, let's go, let's, let's finish them off. And they go, not because they say, oh, what a great man, but because he says, look, Eglon is dead. The reason they follow him into battle is because he's assassinated the king. They weren't expecting to go and fight. They weren't expecting to be delivered that day. Um, Ehud has just done it for them and surprised them and all of a sudden they come down and they have this amazing victory where we're told that 10,000 people are killed. And what they did, they, they took the, the, the river crossing at the, uh, at the Dead Sea where the Jordan River comes in was the ideal place to cross over into Moab. Um, very strategic point. You could stop reinforcements coming. You could catch people as they tried to flee home. We're told there that the 10,000 that they killed were very... Val- well, able-bodied men, and, and the actual word there is, they were fat. Like King Eglon, a different word for fat, but they were, they were living off the fat of the land, and as they try and escape, the Israelites destroy them, and we find the situation turned that no longer is Israel subjugated, but now Moab is subjugated to Israel. And, and we read the story and we go, wow, so easy. Why didn't somebody do it a lot sooner than this? But you've got to remember that, that, that Eglon wasn't just this bumbling comic figure. And his soldiers were not useless soldiers. These were people who had won a great battle and had kept the whole nation of Israel under control and subjugation for almost 20 years. Not people to be taken lightly, but, but what we learn from judges is that God is certainly far more not to be taken lightly. Because God is the God of the unexpected. I, I don't think, but we've got to remember, does God, does God approve of Ehud's tactics? No. And yet God raised up Ehud. And God uses the flaws of Ehud to save his people. God is fantastic at using unexpected people to save. Um, Think about the who's who of the Old Testament and even the New Testament. Moses. A murderer. King David, the friend of God. An adulterer. 
Paul. Persecutor of the church. In fact, I was reading just the other day in our daily readings that he starts preaching and everyone goes, isn't he the one who came to arrest us? Ehud, a deceptive assassin. A left-handed man that nobody thought would do anything. And, and I think for us, even if we are left-handed or if we have left-handed pasts, God can still use us and God can take even our failing character traits and use them for His glory. That's what He did with, with Ehud. He used Ehud's rather dodgy character traits and decisions. He's a deceiver, a murderer, and He uses that for His good. In fact, what we'll see is that with the judges, and in fact the whole story of God's salvation, to a degree, but, but especially with the judges, we start off with Othniel, that, that kind of like Hollywood judge who's shiny, knight in shining armor, shining armor kind of judge. But every judge after that gets more and more unexpected. So we start off with, with Ehud. We end up with, the next one is Deborah. A woman. Can you believe it? Horrible things. Um, it just goes more like that, more and more unexpected. And, and increasingly, every judge has to do more of the work by themselves. Ehud has to first prove himself and kill Eglon before the Israelites follow him down. Um, Deborah and, and Barak, well, only two of the tribes of Israel fight with them. And the last judge is Samson, and he has to do all the work himself. No Israelites who are there to help him. He does everything. And I think as we look at the story of the judges and, and how they're so unexpected and, and how progressively they do more and more of the work themselves, I think what we're pointed to is, is we're pointed to the, the most unexpected and the most metaphorically left-handed judge of them all. The judge who came with nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The judge who came despised and rejected by men. The judge who achieved his victory all alone on behalf of his people but not helped by his people. The judge who crushed his enemy with his seeming weakness. Unlike Ehud, the judge who didn't use deception but was completely honest and truthful. Unlike Barak, who we'll hear of next week, he didn't need somebody to hold his hand. Unlike Gideon, who wasn't selfish. Unlike the judge Jephthah, he wasn't rash. Jephthah said, I will sacrifice to the Lord the first thing that comes out of my house, and his daughter came out of his house. He wasn't rash like Jephthah. 
Unlike Samson, he wasn't sexually weak. And yet Jesus was in all appearances as left-handed, metaphorically, as Edward. No one was expecting him to save them. The disciples kind of started grasping up when he died. They didn't expect him to come back, even though they'd been told. They hoped he was the rescuer. Remember what they said on the road to Emmaus? We, we had hoped that he would be the one to save, but now we're going home. He's the one who delivered his people not through a great triumph, but through a crushing defeat. We should not make the mistake of Eglon who looked on God's chosen deliverer and did not esteem him. Because when we look at Jesus, we see the power of God and the wisdom of God at work. This is a violent story. This is a horrible story. But let's not sugarcoat it. That is a violent story. That is a horrible story. And that is even more unexpected than murdering a king. It happens throughout history. That is unexpected. That is God's answer when His people call out and say, God... We don't expect him to do anything, and then he does. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that make you just want to smile? Fran, over to you. that certainly was some food for thought wasn't it let's stand and sing our final song give thanks to the Lord forever and remember we're thinking about unexpected salvation and how much the Lord loves us and what he did for us so give thanks to